0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
2: This is Launchpad on Business Radio. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Launchpad here on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. I'm Rob Connivere, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, a leading venture capital firm where we focus on investing in early stage companies. I'm joined today remotely via Zoom by my co-host Carl Ulrich, the Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. And we're really lucky to be joined for the full hour today by Blake Scholl. He is the founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic, which is on a mission to bring back commercial supersonic air travel. I can't wait for it. I think the world can't wait for the return to air travel. Blake, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Uh, great to be here, Rob and Carl. Thank you for having me. So you know, just really quickly for our listeners, at a high level,
2: Boom is building a next generation of supersonic passenger transport. And given that you're working on that right now, how are you guys holding up right now with everything that's going on with the COVID pandemic?
1: Um. All things considered, we're doing we're doing relatively well. Uh, so when when COVID first hit, we did close the hangar for a few weeks, uh, got everyone masks, uh, personal protective equipment. Uh, we managed to get COVID testing in place for uh, the entire build critical team. So we're, we're testing everyone every 14 days and are confident that our population is uh, is safe. And so with that, we've been able to keep making progress, building the airplane, you know, a bunch of really important things that happened you know, during, uh, during the pandemic. But uh, with a lot of the team still working from home, I think it, it reinforces uh, one of the fundamental premises of the company, which is life happens in person. And with, you know, with social distancing, uh, you miss out on a lot of the team camaraderie. Uh, a lot of people who are designing parts of the airplane are missing out on uh, seeing it actually coming together physically in the hangar. And so those things are those things are real costs, but it's a reminder of when this passes, just how important it is to make the world connected and that, that not everything can be a Zoom call, but life happens in person. And making that easier is going to be hugely powerful for the world.
2: Yeah, well, you've had a really busy spring, as I understand it from following social media. You've actually... Attach the wings to the fuselage of your baby boom demonstrator that you're working on right now. Maybe talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's right. You know, this is, uh, you know, Rob, you and I've talked about this for many years now. And this is a, it's like building an iceberg where the first few years of working on it, you're laying the foundation and none of it's tangible yet. And uh, and then, you know, in this, this is the year where we finished putting that first airplane together, the uh, XB1 demonstrator, which is uh, basically our prototype for Overture, our first airliner. Uh, it's uh, kind of a one-third scale uh sort of proof of concept. So it'll it'll be the first independently developed supersonic jet ever. You know, previously this has been governments and militaries only. Uh, so we'll be the first private company to uh to build a jet that busts the sound barrier. And what's happening this year is all that hard engineering design work is now becoming you know, physically evident. Uh so you know earlier this year we put the Ford fuselage together. Uh, the internal structure went into that uh, a couple weeks, a couple months ago. Yeah, we tested the wing and then the wing went on the fuselage last month. Uh, just over the last couple weeks, uh, we tested out the nose landing gear. So we've got this big concrete pad out besides the hangar where we, you know, we hoist up the landing gear and then drop it and make sure it's performing the way it needs to. And, uh, you know, in a couple more months, the landing gear will be on the on the aircraft and then we'll have weight we'll in the wheels and then kind of roll it out uh, publicly later this year.
0: Hey, Blake, can I interject and ask a question as a, as a, as a a shade tree uh, engineer? What, how do you think about when you're creating a one third scale prototype? I I can imagine some things uh, scale linearly, like maybe the aerodynamics, but the structure, for example, doesn't, I don't. I wouldn't think so. How do you think about what you can actually learn from something that's one third scale of the full scale prototype?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. So the, the design doesn't directly translate into full scale. It's not like you go into CAD and multiply everything by three and and call it a day. Uh, but there is a ton you can learn. You know, so for example, when you go into wind tunnels, there are methods to go from a wind tunnel scale model aerodynamically to extrapolate to a, a very large aircraft. And so from a one-third scale flying model, you can you can do the same thing, but it's even more because you are uh, it, what you have to do when you go build and fly a real airplane is the entire design has to close, meaning um, the aerodynamics have to be sufficient at high speed and at low speed. Uh, the propulsion system has to work end to end, including supersonic intakes, which are very difficult to, to simulate. You get a lot of experience, a lot of valuable data going off actually flying those systems that take supersonic air, slow it down, compress it, feed it to the engines um, at, uh, at subscale. But then those designs actually do scale, uh, do scale pretty well. And moreover, all the calibration data scale. So, what one way we think about why we're even doing XB1? You might ask the question, well, why spend why spend literally years building a prototype, to then just go ahead and building the, the product airplane that's larger? And the answer is that uh, you, know, you can learn so much uh, from that effort that it's likely going to shave billions and years off of the final product development effort. Uh, you know everything from how the intakes work to the calibration data on aerodynamics that you can only get with full certainty by flying. Um, to, uh, you know, to the, how, you, how you get weight out of composite parts, uh, how, how you balance your choice of materials in different parts of the airplane, to even how you, how you run and manage an engineering program that is uh, safety critical. So tons and tons of lessons learned out of XP1. And uh, we, have, uh, you know, we have an updated design of Overture that's not public yet that looks actually pretty different based on everything we've learned from XP1 so far. We haven't even flown it yet, so there's more learning to come.
2: So you talked about this being about a third scale of the eventual production aircraft. What is the size of the eventual production aircraft and what should people expect it to be able to carry in terms of passengers and distance and that sort of thing?
1: Right. Well, the the mission of Overture is to uh, cut flight times in half and to be able to do it uh, economically, meaning uh, airlines could charge about a business class fare and uh, turn a profit, really a better profit than they can turn subsonically today. And, uh, and so it's a uh, 65 to 75 seat jet. Uh, so it's relatively, uh, relatively small compared to a uh, you know, Boeing or Airbus wide body today in terms of seats. But the way you can think of it is we, uh, we basically took the front cabin off of a 777, made it into a whole airplane and made it go really fast. Um, and the, you know, the reason for that is you know, today we have the technology to do this at business class economics. Uh, and we don't yet have the technology to do it in economy. Economics. So, so that's where we're starting. We're starting with the most mainstream aircraft we can. So it's basically a, a long and skinny you know, 65, 75-seat airplane um, that you can uh, arrive at half the time for about the fare you pay today.
2: So when this comes to market, what time frame should people expect it or are you thinking it'll actually come to market, given everything well, you've learned over the last couple of years?
1: Yeah, well, we think we're about halfway there and the, the overall overall arc of boom. So uh, you know, so in in, in twenty twenty, we'll finish XD one and roll it out. And it's been it's been six years since we started the company, and in, in another six years, I think, we'll be in flight test on uh, on Overture. And you know, my goal is that we're carrying the first revenue passengers before the end of the decade. Uh, you know, it, it, aviation people tend to say, "Why can you do it so fast?" And non aviation people tend to say, "Why why does it take so long?" Um, and the you know the, the the answers to to most of that are. This is uh, one of the most complex safety critical machines ever built by humanity. Airliners are incredibly complicated and we're building an especially complicated airliner as a new company. We're taking the safety on that very, very seriously. So you have to do a lot of testing. You can't skip any steps. On the other hand, every single fundamental technology that goes into this airplane, from you know computer-optimized aerodynamics to carbon fiber composites to turbofan engines, they're all flying elsewhere today on aircraft that have improved safe, reliable, and efficient. And so we're really taking current technology and recombining it into a new design aircraft. Uh, so it's an engineering effort, not really a science effort, uh, but because of the safety criticality, it still takes still takes more time than you wish it would.
2: Well, it sounds like it also, what you were just talking about, about another five or six years until you start getting to revenue passengers, it's kind of an answer to the question of how does COVID affect what you're doing? And it sounds like in a lot of ways, COVID is has posed some execution challenges in terms of getting the team together to be able to actually build the prototype and to be able to coordinate. But when you're starting to look five, six years out, you know, hopefully that's well after the pandemic is behind us and you've had a real resurgence in air travel.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is one of these situations where the longer term is easier to predict than the short term. Know, what kind of a recovery are we going to see in air travel, and how quickly, and how long is it before airlines are ready to start expanding their fleets? is is hard to predict. Uh, but we do know fundamentals of you know when life happens in person that uh, that business is best done with a handshake, um, that there is going to be a resurgence in travel, therefore, and uh, that in, in many ways we'll have an advantage because what airlines right now are clearing out their fleets, and they're going to this contraction phase, and you know, a couple of years from now ish there's going to be an expansion phase and that's going to be right about the time where we're ready to do you know, the next wave of mysterious uh, pre-sales of Overture.
0: Hey, Blake, can I, can I ask a question about, about design process and, and startup process? I think if you think about Silicon Valley culture, the dominant paradigm is lean, lean startup. And I wonder, are, what is your approach? Have you had to just throw that book away or are there some elements of lean that you have applied to, to your project?
1: I think there's um uh there's definitely elements of lean that apply and you know, the the product development cycles and the scale of capital involved are you know very different from your typical software as a service company but uh, a lot of the principles still apply and indeed you know you might say one of the uh, the nastiest way to mess this up would be uh that we go through the process of birth to supersonic aircraft, but we don't nail the product market fit exactly right. And uh, and therefore we you know we do actually build another Concord where it was a technological marvel but it didn't fit with the market and so so how do you how do you avoid that well you get really close to your customers from day one and that includes both passengers and airlines and so you know we view we view the traveling public as our most important customer segment so we do you know we do research with passengers we've got mock-ups of the ultimate uh, you know airplane experience that we bring people through we get their feedback on it we're keeping you know, we're continuing to do that we're looking at what the economics of the airplane are going to be and how the fares are going to be affordable and how customers can respond to that and then from an airline perspective uh you know we uh uh you know we work closely with japan airlines who's our one of our launch customers um we uh it, it, we, you know, pre-COVID, we go over to Tokyo on a regular basis, and they would take our design teams around. They show us how they maintain aircraft, uh, how they operate, kind of the the, the ten thousand details that go into making uh, a product that doesn't just have a headline feature, but's actually uh, it, actually set to be a great aircraft to have in their fleet. And so that you know that uh, interaction with airlines and that interaction with passengers, in a way, keeps us honest. Um, you know, through this product development process, so that we know what we're building is is not just really cool but 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 exactly what the market wants
0: yeah one through, quick, the, through that
1: process we've made a bunch of changes already
0: yeah well i was going to just ask one quick follow-up on that uh what what is an example of a surprise I, I suspect the basic benefit proposition is pretty compelling but but what is an example of something you really learned from talking to customers
1: yeah um so the uh willingness to pay for speed uh that we've seen in the market research we've done has been a lot greater than what we expected mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we started the business thinking, you know, who knows if anyone would pay any kind of speed premium, but, and, the we've done, we've done some fairly, fairly thorough market surveys. And what we found is that there's this, you know, easy 40 to 60% willingness to pay for flights being shorter. And then there's this you know, second kind of demand stimulation effect you get where there are people flying premium economy today because they, you know, they think the value proposition of business class is, you know, a, a better wine list. And it's hard to, it's hard to justify either personally or professionally uh, but when you when you when you, when you pay more and you actually get something valuable, which is you get there you know, many times like a whole day sooner uh then that becomes that becomes something you 're willing to pay for so that's um, uh, i think that's been probably one of the biggest surprises on the on the consumer side and you know on the on the airline side uh we've learned a lot about how how airplanes really fit into fleets um, and how how the getting the, the details of the speed right for example are crucial to making sure you actually uh, you know, actually save time when you consider how hubbing works and how connections work and what flights can be direct. Like I'll, give you another, I'll give you an example out of the freight world. Um, uh, one, of our, one of our early investors uh, was the former chief operating officer of FedEx, and we've been looking at you know what are cargo possibilities of supersonic, and it turns out it's all cutoff driven. So, you know, Everything flies to Memphis uh, overnight, and then they sort it and they fly it back out. And so what, what matters is, can you basically, can you get a package to Memphis a day earlier than you otherwise could have and make that cutoff? And it turns out, in many cases, the answer is yes. And that leads to some really exciting scenarios. Like if you look like, uh, what if you've got a, what if you're a consumer electronics company in California and you've got a factory in China, and you're here to care about uh, how long can, does it take to get a new design? engineering in California over to the factory in China to get a test unit off the production line and then back into the hands of the engineers that designed it and today it takes 48 hours and it turns out the way if you can meet the cutoff times, which you can with our airplane, that the 40 hours drops to uh, 24 hours. You can actually double the speed of iteration.
2: That's really an amazing story. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Cunnibeer along with Carl Ulrich and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We're talking right now with Blake Scholl, the founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic, and we've been discussing how input from prospective customers and passengers has shaped their design process. So one of the things that's really surprised me, I've been very impressed with Blake, because I've gotten to know you over the years, is how you came from a software engineering background and really brought yourself up to speed in a pretty sophisticated industry in aerospace and really curious about how did, you, how did you do that and how did you decide that you wanted to start not just an air transport company, but a supersonic air transport company?
1: Um, I'll start with the second part of that first. Uh, I mean, I've been uh, an airplane guy by passion, but not by training. I've been flying for fun since I was in college and there was a moment in my mid twenties, kind of in the middle of my internet career where uh, everything was getting faster and better and then my my girlfriend was stuck on one of these horrifically delayed flights. And I started uh, started wondering whatever happened to supersonics and set a Google alert that day on a supersonic jet because I wanted to be first to know when you could buy a ticket and go break the sound barrier. And it turns out for the better part of a decade, it was just crickets. And <laughs> I ultimately realized uh, that if uh, if I wanted to go Mach 2 in my lifetime, I might have to start the company to do it.
2: So you weren't um, getting anything on your Google alerts? There was nothing coming in, just some weird nothing, stuff that had nothing to do with?
1: Yeah, there was nothing credible. You know, there there were some <laughs> things that were clearly science fiction. Um, and there were some things that were, you know, a talk of a supersonic private jet, which is, you know, that's great if you've got $100 million to drop on your travel budget. But that wasn't, that wasn't me or my friends or family. Um, and so, you know, along the way I had started the internet company, we sold it to Groupon and, you know, there's nothing like working on internet coupons to make you yearn to work on something that you really love. And so, after li- <laughs> <laughs> so, so after many leaving- free massages and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. How, how about half time instead of half price? <laughs> um, but no, after, leaving, after leaving Groupon, I knew I wanted to do another startup. And as, as you guys know, like there's no such thing as an easy startup. They all run through kind of life and death challenges, you know, often multiple times. And uh, so what you want to do as a founder is pick something that you're never going to give up on. And so I thought, well, let me look at all my ideas and descend in descending order of how happy I will be personally if they work and forget everything else. And so I thought I worked on that list and probably end up working on idea number five. But I, I got lucky enough, that I'm still working on idea number one.
2: What was idea number two? Now I'm curious. What, what else well, there, was on that top five it,
1: list? It, it, it fell off quickly. Number five was like rental cars. It was really It got boring quickly. Uh, but to to come back to the part of your question about how you how you learn in a domain, I think people really underestimate uh, how much they can learn when when they've got two things: uh, one, like a lot of motivation, and number two, a really good internal sense of what confusion is versus clarity. Uh, it's, what, I used to have a thinking coach. One of the most important things I learned from my coach was how to introspect and tell whether you're clear on something or whether you're confused on something. And I, I'm confused a lot, but at least I know it. And so when I went off to learn aerospace, you know, I got a bunch of textbooks. Uh, I took an airplane design class. And when there was a topic that was important enough, I would just sort of spin on it until I knew I really got it. And if I didn't get it from one book, I'd throw it away and get another book. And if that didn't work, I'd find somebody and call them up and ask them a question. Or I'd explain stuff to them and get them to tell me back when I had it wrong. And and when I started building a team, my my favorite interview question was, teach me something. And so in the <laughs> early days, uh, you, you laugh, but it's actually a really great question because it's, it's much easier... You can actually judge whether someone knows what they're talking about, even if you don't know the answer yourself. Uh, If you look for first principles and you're willing to just keep questioning them until you actually understand. And you'll discover that a lot of people who are purported to be experts uh, have actually just memorized a lot of rules of thumb, but they don't have real fundamental understanding. But if you can find the people who have real fundamental understanding and are great communicators, not only do you have an incredible foundation of a company, you've also got the team that's gonna teach you the things that you need to know to stay sharp. And Didn't so did that-
2: Einstein have a quote around this? He said something like, if you can't explain something simply, then you really don't understand it.
1: I, 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 it's, it's definitely true.
0: It's definitely hey Blake, I can't, I can't let that, that pass without asking you to teach us something. So, t- <laughs> teach us, no, seriously, teach us, teach us what that thinking coach taught you. Like, how do you decide? Give us a quick, uh, or, or maybe it isn't quick, but give us a sense of, of, of how you actually do discern whether you're confused or not.
1: Uh, it's a habit you have to develop. It's, not, it's, uh, it, it's almost like a, I experience it as an emotion, the same way you can feel, like, excited or anxious. Uh, you learn to really tune into that feeling of confusion, and, and you have to drop your ego about it. As uh, so if you if you feel like you got to know all the answers and you got to be right all the time, then uh, you won't be able to be intellectually honest with yourself. Uh, so you got to be you got to be willing with yourself and with other people to ask the questions that you feel stupid asking, and you got to be willing to say I don't understand or I don't get that. Uh, the, the process I went through with my, my thinking coach, one part of it was actually doing a lot of exercises with the theory of definitions and trying to define words. Now, that probably sounds like a non sequitur, uh, but we would, uh, we would literally go in and just pick ordinary vocabulary words like gift and do this exercise of how do you write a definition of them? And that, uh, what that, it turns out it's really hard to do a re- in a really great way. But if you work at it long enough, then you, you learn what it's like to really get to the essence of a concept and what it's like when the rubber meets the road and what that feels like intellectually versus uh, versus you know, earlier on when you've got this sort of woozy explanation of what something is. And so once you develop that sort of mental habit and you learn to be in touch with it and honor it and respect it and be willing to be vulnerable socially when you know you're confused, then you can end up in a good place. So I've never heard of a thinking coach before. It makes all the sense in the
2: world because it seems like that's like university professor or something like that, you know, another phrase. But- at what point did you decide, hey, I'm going to try out this thinking
1: coach thing, and how do you find somebody
2: to do that? Well,
1: I, I got, got that very work. lucky because it was a friend of a friend, and you know, I, I, I honestly, I think thinking coaches could use some marketing coaches. <laughs> uh, <'cause, laughs> uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a category that really even exists today, but there's um, but you, you can find some people out there for it, uh, and uh, it, I, I don't know if I know how to give great advice because it's a very, very small group. Uh, of people that actually go and do this. And they do and they do these things that seem at first blush very disconnected with what you think would be useful because it goes to fundamentals like definitions very early.
2: Yeah, this this really seems like very fertile uh vein. So I do want to ask one follow-up question. How often do you talk to your thinking coach or is that something that is in the past?
1: That was it was mostly in the past. You know, she's she's a friend I, I talk to now, but that back when I was doing this intensively in my in my twenties, it was like a, a once a week thing.
2: Oh, I see. So it sounds like if anything, it was it gave you the foundation to really think about how would you learn something new, how would you take something on, so that when you had these five top ideas and you had this great one, you mm-hmm. felt a high level of confidence that you could take it on. It's really remarkable what what that's, you've done.
1: Right. What the try? Right. I did mean, give another example there that will help ground this for people. Like one one specific skill I learned from her was uh, what's called thinking on paper. Um, and thinking on paper, it's actually really easy to do if you get a couple of things. It's just basically stream of consciousness onto paper or onto type of word, it doesn't matter, where the only rules are, you write your goal for what you're trying to figure out at the top of the page. You know, goal, you know figure out how I'm going to solve my hiring problem in the engineering department or goal, figure out how I'm going to find a co-founder in an industry I don't know. And then you literally write down every word that goes through your mind and what happens is your thinking gets a lot slower, but uh, you start to catch the thoughts that become between thoughts, and, you, and you're forced to have that objectivity of the written word, so things get less woozy and they get more clear. And uh, you know, for the, when I was starting Boom, I, I thought on paper probably a couple hours a day. And, uh, and every day I would go back and kind of reread what I'd done the last day, and that would get me right back to where I was. And it's, it's like putting your car in first gear. Uh, you can't go as fast, but you get a lot more mental leverage.
2: Well, this is really interesting because one of the things that I've always admired about what you're building with Boom is the way that you've thought about the go-to-market and the way that you could take something that's a relatively complex idea and distill it down. So, for example, when people ask about the business model and the unit economics, being able to just say, hey, we can give you a domestic first-class seat for the price of a lie-flat international seat, is actually pretty easy to understand and start to wrap your, your head around about, oh, yeah, of course, it's more expensive. But if you look at what the customer really wants to have, and then you've done some really clever things in terms of how you got the airlines on board, and maybe, you know, if that's something you'd be comfortable sharing kind of high level, how you managed to get JAL and some of the other airlines to step up and partner with mm-hmm. you at an early stage.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, boy, lots of great stories to tell there. So I'll, I'll talk about talk about Japan Airlines, who we're really fortunate to have as a partner. And that that whole deal took about eighteen months to put together, um, so it was a, a relatively long cycle. Uh, but we could tell from the first meeting that we were in a really good place with them. And uh, the you know, the essence of the conversation was, you know, okay, Japan Airlines, uh, how much of your business uh, comes from front cabin customers? Like, okay, well it's only about 10% of seats, but it's like half revenue. It's the majority of the profits. All right. Okay. Well, you know those customers really well. Do you think they would uh do you think they would switch airlines to get there in half the time at about the same fare? Like, yeah, I of course they would. they'd probably even pay money and switch, pay more money and switch airlines. Oh, okay. Well, what would happen to your business if your direct competitor down the street at A and A had this uh and you didn't? And it's like, oh, crap. Well, you know, we'd have to rip out our entire business class cabinet. We have to go into low-cost economy only. Uh, like, we'd be, you know, we'd be lucky to survive that. Well, okay, sign here. You can do it to them. And, uh, and so the idea was to create a first-mover incentive for airlines. By default, these are, you know, Japan Airlines is a 70-year-old conservative Japanese company. This is not, you know, this is not the the where you would think there'd be fertile ground for an, a company that normally buys from Boeing and Airbus to suddenly throw in with a startup that hasn't yet built anything. Uh, so what you have to do is uh, create an incentive to go first. And so you know the, the, the a pattern of our early airline deals was there there was a return for being early with us. If you throw in with Boom. Then uh, we'd make sure that you got a significant benefit, uh, you know, like like some you know some limited regional exclusivity, something like that. Such that uh, when this comes to market, uh, you know, if you are if you're a carrier on a route that's got supersonic and no one else does, uh, you're in a really good place, and the other guys aren't. So that was you know that was part of it. And then a- along the way, you just have to earn their credibility and trust, and you know all the other standard device on sales applies. But the the linchpin is create a first mover advantage for your customers. Hey, and I- hey, I'm curious if Oh, the the main thing I was curious about is how
2: did you come up with that idea? Did you come up with that idea in conversation with co-founders or was it part of this process that you were talking about, the, the thinking process that you talked about?
1: That's a great question. I don't actually remember where that idea came from. Um but I, 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 we had a lot of conversations uh you know either with myself or with co-founders i, I can't remember where it was exactly where's like how do we get how do we get these guys to want to do it and what how do you answer what's in it for them and uh you know and if you think about it that way it's actually not a huge leap
0: but blake they they have to you have to be a credible threat so why did they believe you what did you do to be sure to make, be to make it clear you were a credible threat
1: um so you got to you got to make the ask the right size. Like if you go in there and say, uh, you know, here's here's why supersonic is going to be really transformative and why you're going to be left in the dust if you're not on, on board first. Uh, and I want you to give me a firm order for four billion in aircraft. You know, it, it, they'll show you the back door pretty easy, pretty quickly. Um, but you, you, so you got to make the right ask and you got to make sure that there's, you know, uh, that the that their perceived, you know, upside and, and downside are proportionate with what you're asking. And then to the extent you possibly can, you want to make sure there's some benefits from them that are as front-loaded as possible. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, Japan Airlines, uh, you know, secured their pre-order of aircraft with, um, with a, a $10 million payment uh, up front. And now that's that's $10 million on what will ultimately be a few billion. Um, so you might say, oh, it's a drop in a bucket. It's like, but it, in our mind, it was like earnest money. It was the right amount to ask for that would um, cause them to take it seriously enough that that investment would mean things to other people. Um, but not, not so much that, uh, it didn't make any sense for them to do. And then we, you know, we agreed that they could be a, a development partner of the program. So they'd be able to kind of put their finger, uh, fingerprints on the airplane, make sure that we're building it the way they need it to be built and also do some, some PR with them, which is mutually advantageous, but you know, saying, Hey, we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be first in Japan with supersonic is something that gives them brand value, uh, right now. And so the more you can pull the benefits to the left, the better. The better it is, and you got to right size, right size your ask. Um, and then the other thing is so the, the most common question I get asked by other entrepreneurs is, yeah, how do you how do you architect pre-orders uh, to make this happen? The other thing that's really important to get right is to to engineer when the pre-order has to become a, a real order. And uh, and so we set up um, we without without getting into stuff that's confidential here. The the framework is uh, you want to set up milestones out in the future. Uh, where you will obviously be demonstrating your credibility, um, and it'll be the right time to kind of ask the customer to hard commit. So, you know, after we go demonstrate supersonic flight on XB1, that's a great time for, uh, at that point, our leverage will be much stronger than it was kind of at the seed days, and it'll be the right time to go back to Japan Airlines and others and say, you know, let's, uh, let's go do the, the final deal here. We're continuing this conversation this hour with Blake Scholl. He is the founder
2: and CEO of Boom Supersonic, which is on a mission to bring back commercial supersonic air travel. Blake, you had a childhood, I believe, in the Midwest in Cincinnati and then went to Pittsburgh for college. But maybe just talk a bit about your path into entrepreneurship.
1: Um, I, I've wanted to be an entrepreneur uh, for about as long as I can remember. Um, the uh, my my dad had started an electronics consulting company and had been involved in kind of a, a small business where he was he was helping lead it, and uh, it, 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 a lot of my heroes were you know people who had built had built great things. I remember in high school thinking thinking Bill Gates was God, um, and so I I started my first company when I was in uh, in high school in my parents' basement. So this was the this was kind of the mid to late '90s. And the, you know, the internet was starting to boom and you know uh, we got some Linux machines together and I, I built a tiny, tiny little internet service provider, uh, literally in my parents' basement and, uh, uh, and sold it before I went to college for a tiny sum. I got to buy myself some toys. So it wasn't, it wasn't really a business, but I think I, I learned relatively early on um, what, it's, what it's like to go create something from scratch. How yeah. many and
2: customers I, did you have with that ISP?
1: Uh, geez, uh, maybe a hundred, uh, something like that. Like it was, it was, uh, it was a weird business. You know, we had, we had a couple of servers and I I never quite convinced my parents to, to, to make the investment, to get me a T1 line. Uh, so that, that was my first failed experience in capital raising, I think.
2: But a hundred customers, they must've found you somehow. That's pretty, pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. Well, we, we, uh, most of the business was, uh, Renting renting shell accounts on on Linux servers. It turns out there was a market there that really wanted it that wasn't served by most ISPs. So what was
2: next? So then you ended up in Pittsburgh after you were yeah. living with your parents. Uh,
1: yeah. So I went, went to Carnegie Mellon for school and uh, went to went to Amazon as my first job after college uh, as a software engineer. And I, I specifically chose Amazon. Uh, because I wanted to go some, be someplace where uh, the technical people would still get exposed to the business side, and and Amazon didn't really have like these are the business people and these are the engineers. Uh, they had this notion of uh, software engineers can do anything, and uh, uh, and so I was I was working on sort of you know, marketing automation, Is like people who bought this item also bought recommendation software uh, when when you know collaborative filtering was kind of the the new hot rage. And, uh, and the really cool thing I got to do in Amazon was do the very first ad buy from Google. Uh, so back in, I think this was 2000, late 2002, early 2003, when AdWords was like this brand new thing and Google was this brand new thing. And uh, and there was this great question of, okay, how, uh, how does shopping really start on the internet? Does it start at a store? Does it start at a search engine? What's going to be the role of, of performance marketing? And so we, we built what was I think the first large scale automated advertising system. So this thing would wake up and it would you know, literally go autonomously create millions of ads uh, and then test to see which ones actually sold profit. and buy the ones that were working and turn off the ones that weren't. And this is all very cliche-ish now, but I think we were, I think we we're the first to do that in a significant way.
2: And for, so and for personally- So when you're doing that and, and, you're, and you're starting to buy this advertising programmatically, what does your budget look like? Because- in those days it's just getting started but are you spending like a couple hundred bucks that's working we'll spend a couple thousand like how do you get permission to do that it seems like it's a recipe to lose a lot of money really fast
1: yeah well so the the, the budget was unlimited actually and we got <laughs> I, I i remember the very first time i got in trouble with senior management at amazon i ran into our svp in the parking lot and he asked us how this uh uh, ad buying project has gone so far. I said, "Well, we'd spent four hundred dollars, but we'd sold like several thousand dollars in product, and so I was feeling really good about it." And he's like, "Why aren't you spending way more than that?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I got in the hot seat very quickly. But if I, I, I zoom out, there was a bigger thing going on on the internet in that time period that mm-hmm. that I realized at the time, which was there's a question of like where would shopping searches start, and uh, do they start? Uh, you know, Do you start on Google? Or a, or a shopping search which is its own thing that somebody like Amazon can own? And the, the answer wasn't obvious. And so Amazon, I think as a company, and this is, this is nothing other than like Blake's speculation. I, I, I don't actually know this is the thought process, but I suspect it was. Uh, was Amazon's plan A was to be the shop the, the starting point for shopping search on the internet. Uh, obviously they won that, but it wasn't clear they could. And so plan B was get really good at showing up on Google. And, uh, and in fact, I was running uh, a key piece of plan B. For Amazon, uh, which is why, uh, which is why that ended up being a very high visibility project. But I got called to the hot seat with Jeff about once a quarter, um, and that was an incredible learning experience to be able to have those interactions. And I was like, I, I ended "What's up the with hot this... seat
2: look like? Do you get in an elevator, go up to the top of a <laughs> building? What's what's a, What's a, What's a day in the hot seat with Jeff look like?" Uh,
1: well, my my very first meeting with Jeff uh, was at five o'clock on a Friday. And it was at the outset of this project, and my my director had told me, uh, mind you, I'm 22. He's like, hey, the CEO has a lot of opinions about your project. And if you don't want to micromanage it, uh, you should go talk to him first and and make him feel heard. And so I was nervous like crazy. And so it's 5 o'clock on a Friday, and it's me and my direct manager and Jeff. And Jeff walks in, and he's like, hey, guys, do you want to ride my Segway? This is like right when Segways <laughs> first come out, and the first half hour it's of that a nice segue. Yeah. was going up in the uh, you know going going up and down the halls of Amazon on Jeff Bezos's Segway, and so he was uh, <laughs> he was very good at put very good at putting you ease at, at ease actually. It's so if it, with Jeff, if you show up and you know what you're talking about, and you're willing to take ownership when when you made a mistake, the hot seat isn't too hot. Like I, I you know I remember another moment at Amazon where uh, I had, I had screwed something up. I hadn't prioritized things correctly, and I was presenting to the leadership team, and you could tell people were starting to get. Um, You know, uh, uncomfortable about it. I just said, Look, guys, I I screwed the prioritization on it. It won't happen again. And you know, the conversation moved on. And there was another time Jeff asked, Well, why didn't you do X? My answer was, Well, I didn't think of that. And I remember he laughed and laughed. He said, That's a great answer. No one ever says it, but it's true all the time. (laughs) So, uh, but but if you show up and you try to uh, tap dance your way through something you don't actually understand, the hot seat gets very hot.
2: Yeah, well, it sounds like being prepared is very important together with having confidence and honesty intellectual honesty to be able to say you don't know. So sounds like that was quite an experience. So you went from the frying pan to the Groupon
1: fire. What was that like? I'm sorry, I missed the last part of that. Went to the Groupon oh, fire? Oh, Groupon. Yeah. Oh, the Groupon, Groupon. fire. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Groupon and Amazon are very interesting foil because uh, they they would say a lot of the similar things about how they wanted their culture to work, but in, in reality were like very different in how they operated. You know, I, I think the hallmark of Amazon culture in this context is really good long range thinking and Jeff Jeff could see an opportunity a decade away and would encourage the company to think very long range and you know be willing to take um uh be, be willing to to take lumpy cash flow in the short term for doing the right thing for the business for the long term so we get a lot of vol- volatility in the stock price but he's willing to tolerate that for building the right business and I saw a lot of cases where Amazon's long range point of view versus you know, for example, the short range point of views on suppliers you know, really worked out to their advantage. And I saw uh, in Groupon, at least, at least when I was there, you know, had gone public probably a little bit too early, was really under the Wall Street microscope, and was in this mode where they were very beholden to you know, showing up quarter by quarter with the right results. And, and that drove in that company, um, like a, a lot of, you know, a lot of behaviors that were really long term, not great, like, hey, you know, revenue is soft. So let's send more email. Um, which, you know, helps the current quarter, but it's sort of like setting your stock seat on fire because people unsubscribe. Uh, and so that, you know, the, the lesson for me, I think it was really useful to be at those two companies is you, you learn what a long range principles driven culture really looks like uh, versus, versus one that's uh, gotten itself into a position where it can't do that.
2: Yeah. And then, of course, you had the interim steps where you went to Pelago and then I think you founded, uh, Chima labs, maybe talk about that experience a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, so, uh, uh, Pelago was the first, uh, first iPhone company. Um, and, uh, it was, it was founded by the former head of consumer at Amazon. who's has been a close friend and mentor to me kind of all the way along the way. And one of our board members at boom now, um, and, and this is uh, that
2: Kleiner Perkins special fund that they had, the that's right. fund.
1: Right. This was the first fund dedicated to invest in app companies, basically. And, uh, and so Pel- Pelago was building uh, something that ended up being like Foursquare plus Yelp plus Google Maps, um, uh, originally for a Motorola Razr in 2006. And it was this, it was this interesting experience of uh, building you know, a, a lot of the winning ideas, and we never, we never quite made it to the market correctly. Um, so uh, I think not enough a, a lot of really good vision uh didn't get the timing and the execution right and didn't get the didn't get the focus right and so I think one of the one of the lessons I took away from that was that you know it, it, how to have a lot how to get to a lot of the ideas that ultimately can be winning ideas but the importance of really picking and choosing what you focus on and not boiling the ocean. And so then I wanted to go Try my own hand at doing a startup, which is, which is Kima Labs, which is doing mobile e-commerce things that are pr- probably not interesting enough to really talk about. But I'll, I'll share what I, the most important thing I learned from it. Uh, at Kima, we kind of deduced our way into what products to work on. And um, uh, Rob, I think you and I first met when I was still working on Kima. Uh, but you know, Kima was like, "Hey, mobile is a big thing, e-commerce is a big thing. There must be there must be something interesting at the intersection." Um, and and so we sort of backed our way into what we thought products would be, and the, the result was, uh, you know, we, we built some pretty interesting things, nothing that was huge. And when I faced the choice of you know, do I want to raise another round and keep going with this company, or do I want to take the the pretty awesome offer we had from Groupon? Uh, it was that what we were building wasn't important enough uh, to me personally to keep going with it and to kind of go through the next round of of, of hell that you go through as a startup founder. And so the, the lesson I really learned from the KEMA experience is that I want to build a product that I personally care about, uh, and I don't want to deduce what a interesting product is. I want to work on something that I know personally, and I care about enough that my product intuition will really matter.
2: Well, if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Beer together with Carl Ulrich, my co-host, and this is Launchpad on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132. Our guest today is Blake Scholl, the founder and CEO of Boom Supersonic what was it like to find your co-founders or early employees to really get that engine started? And then how did you manage to raise over $100 million for a, a product that takes 10 years to get to market?
1: Uh, it was a one-year process from leaving Groupon to hiring my first employee. And so wow. the first, you know, you know, roughly the first six months of that was just getting educated. Uh, so uh you're know, reading textbooks taking an airplane design class um and then you know when i got to the point that I, I no longer felt embarrassed about how little i knew about the space or my embarrassment was small enough that i would start to talk to other humans uh i started looking at my network i went to linkedin and you know how you can go to like okay find your connections in an industry and uh i had no one first degree in aerospace no one and my best uh my best connection <laughs> was uh somebody who had worked for me at Groupon had played uh, hockey in college with someone who now worked at SpaceX. And I thought, that's great. Like I'll see if I can get that introduction. <laughs> so so I, I took that introduction and my only, only credibility in that meeting was I could fly down to Hawthorne, California in an airplane I flew myself. That was my, mm-hmm. that was my only cred. Uh, but the guy was kind enough to take the meeting and, uh, and I told him what I was trying to do and why. And uh, you know, he, he told me he wasn't crazy and he knew some people I should meet. And so that, that meeting led to another five more uh, meetings. And what I, what I ended up doing is basically searching for people via recursion. So everyone I met, I would, um, you know, if you say you're building supersonic jets, the first question people have is, are you crazy? And uh, if you can convince them, the answer is no. Their second question is, how can I help? And so virtually, virtually everyone wants to help. And the question I would ask is, if you could wave a magic wand and get anyone on the planet to come be in the trenches with you on this. Uh, so forget about who's available or who would want to do it. Just think about who would be the right person to help, especially at the early stages. You know, what are the top five names that come to mind? And so uh, I would get those five names, and I would meet them, and I would ask them all the same question. And so I was searching, basically searching for great people via recursion. And uh, by early twenty fifteen, I had kind of half a dozen candidates for the first couple roles in the company. And so we um, uh, and I was trying to figure out like how do I pick the right ones? And what we ended up doing. Um, was uh was flying them all out to california at the same time and i I got a friend of mine at sequoia to loan us a conference room for a couple days so we did this uh instead of like trying to interview them all one-on-one we got them all together for a jam session and you know day one of the jam session was uh let's talk about uh let's talk about what this needs technically like what do you need to pull this off versus what's the current state of the art. And then day two was, let's talk about company building. And like, you know, airplane startups, there aren't that many of them. They don't always do well. What are the classic mistakes? Uh, what do you want to do right? Especially airplane startups founded by internet guys. What do they screw up? And what do you want to get right? When they showed up, that?
2: did they know it was going to be a group session like this? Or were they surprised? Like, oh, wow, there's a no, team ever, here, and ever, these might be the people I'm working with.
1: No, everyone knew what they were getting into, at least approximately. Um, and so it turns out, if you get a lot of smart people in a room, uh, and you watch them interact, and you can like ask the right questions, uh, you don't have to know all the answers yourself. Uh, but you, you you'll be able to tell one who actually knows what they're talking about, and two, you'll be able to watch the group dynamic, and you'll be able to figure out who the leaders are that you really want to work with. And so we hired uh, hired two people out of that room, and uh, and a third one is consulting with us. Um, so so about you know half that. Half the people in that room ended up being part of a team, one way or the hey,
0: other. Hey, hey, Blake, I got to interject a, a question here. So it's basically the question about the role of an outsider and outside expertise and maybe just audacity. I mean, all the ingredients for this plane were there or are there among these existing experts. So what role what, what role does an outsider play in catalyzing? And to what extent do you have to start with a with a clean sheet?
1: It's a, it's a great question. I remember thinking in the early days, like, what, what do I bring to the table? Uh, it was like, I'm not an airplane guy. I, I don't, I don't, I didn't start this with personal wealth. Um, and so it, it turns out what you actually bring is the table. Uh, <laughs> and and you're, you're often taught in Silicon Valley, that if an idea is a good idea, that there are probably already five high quality teams working on it. And I think there's some domains in the world where that's true, but if you zoom out far enough, I don't think it's true at all. There are all kinds of problems that are sitting around, ready to be solved, that just don't have high quality teams on them for one reason or another. Like the problem hasn't been well perceived, or there's you know there's history with it that makes people think it's not solvable, or it's got some gnarly aspect like it's capital intensive or highly regulated, or there's some reason that tends to scare off talent. Um, and so there are there are I think lots of opportunities out there like boom where there's a big problem to be solved but no one working on it it just needs some one person to say i'm gonna go do it um one of the other
2: things i remember from our conversations in the past is an instagram account that you've had and maybe you could talk (laughs) about the concord instagram account and the strategy with that
1: oh it's this is a fun fun story um so uh I think it was shortly after we come out of stealth mode, you know, we're kind of reading our own press and there's a a blog post out there that is uh, very thoughtful about all things supersonic and um, uh, quotes a bunch of former Concorde pilots in it. Uh, Wow. Whoever wrote this is like really well connected in aviation specifically with like the very tiny world of supersonics. And so I I reached out and said, Hey, I want to get to, you know, I'd be happy to talk to you. sounds like you really know what you're doing. And it, it turns out the blog post has been written by a 16-year-old girl, uh, <laughs> who happened to live in Denver. And uh, and somehow this this girl had had developed this incredible deep passion, very specifically for Concord, knew every single living Concord pilot personally, and uh, and so we uh, uh, we hired her as a marketing intern that summer, and uh, she. Uh, she later on decided, so she ran she ran this awesome Instagram account, uh, I think called Speedbird Concord that you're referring to. Oh yeah, and, I follow uh, it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, this is, this is, yeah, she's she's awesome. And then her experience at Boom took her from thinking that she'd be kind of a marketing comms person to actually wanting to go into uh, engineering. And she's a student at Embry Riddle now. Wow, that's we've a great story. Yeah. yeah, we've
2: we've got about three minutes before we'll have to break, but. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is what advice do you have for people out there, both starting companies, but I think more specifically, people that are hoping to work in aerospace or build something in aerospace as opposed to other areas?
1: Um, so I, I think two, two things come to mind off the top of my head. For, you know, for entrepreneurs, pick something that you love. Uh, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's really true. Uh, pick something that personally motivates you. And if you can do that, if you can find a mission that is more important to you than anything else, if you can find a mission that matters to you more than your own insecurity, more than your own view of what you can and can't do, um, then you'll find that you can overcome a lot of challenges along the way. You'll be more magnetic for the people around you, and you'll uh, you'll overcome whatever personal challenges you have that are that are getting in your way. So so motivation really matters. Optimize for your own motivation. And then you know, thinking specifically about people in aerospace and, and um, what startups get started there, there, uh, there are a lot of technologies in search of problems to solve. And uh, I think a thing that made Boom very different is we started with what incredible experience did we want to go create for travelers? And then we worked backwards to what's the best technology for it. And on day one, it wasn't clear that Boom was even going to be an airplane. We looked at suborbital so point to point. You know, we, we started with want to make travel faster not with like, this is the, here's the airplane, let's figure out how to bring it to market. And so I, I would encourage other folks in aerospace to take that approach and uh, you know, think about what incredible benefits you can bring to customers and then work backwards with the technology.
2: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I didn't realize that you were considering ballistic as well as supersonic <laughs> at one point.
1: Well, we, it, supersonics were really different six years ago. You know, so t- today, the, the broad world basically thinks this is inevitable. But six years ago, the world thought it was closer to impossible, and uh, you know you would see concept planes for supersonic tossed around the same way you'd see concept things for suborbital point-to-point, all with kind of the same level of credibility. So uh, it, it wasn't obvious, especially to an outsider, what the right technology vector was. You know, should we? You know, should this be a, a airplane? Should it be a rocket? Should it be you know jet fuel powered? Should it be all electric? We, we wanted to choose the right technology vector for the right time horizon.
2: Yeah, well, Blake, this is just fantastic advice. Fantastic perspective. I always enjoy our conversations, so I really appreciate you making the time to join me and Carl
1: today. Uh, likewise, I always enjoy our conversations. Yeah, and let for me just interject.
0: That... Oh, go ahead, uh, Blake. Uh, that that I I I I had you on the show. I don't know way back when we first started a few years ago, and I. Every time I teach entrepreneurship and innovation, I put an image up there of of you guys back when you were just cooking this stuff up because it's such fantastic it's stuff such fantastic stuff and it it is such a counterpoint to so much of what is happening in silicon valley
1: well that that warms my heart and I you know one of my greatest dreams for this company is that will inspire other entrepreneurs to think bigger. so I think there are a lot of a lot of really big problems out there that can be solved by entrepreneurs. Um, if if they're willing to tack on bigger problems, and one of the one of the things that's become clear to me is when you go start a company, it, it, no matter what company it is, you're running at your own personal red line, which feels the same. So if you're if it's going to feel the same, why not go after the biggest thing you can?
2: Well, Blake, thanks again. So thank you all for joining us. If you missed any of the last hour, you can check it out on demand on the SiriusXM app and follow Business Radio on Twitter at SXM Business. You can also follow me at Rob Connivier. Stay well and stay safe in this pandemic. I'm Rob Connebeer. I've been joined today by Carl Ulrich. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, SiriusXM 132.
0: For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.